Money laundering, tax evasion, and ties to the Russian mafia. Throw in a few shaken martinis and you've got a plot to an Archer episode. But all these things can be found within easy reach of this small island over 3,000 kilometers off the coast of Australia. Now wait a minute, kilometers. I'm in the U.S. That's miles. Pete, back when I, I was in the Army, I think a kilometer was like 0.6 miles. So uh, quick figuring, I think that's more like 1,800 miles, guys. So this one tiny island nation, once known for its uh, native community, is now known as a hotbed of corruption and this multitude, I mean multitude, of money-related crimes. But hidden behind the news coverage of this latest financial scandal that engulfs this island lays a very rich and often overlooked culture and the struggle of everyday working people who've called this, this island home for millennia. In this episode, we'll be uncovering the story of how they found themselves in the center of the world's most notorious organized crime syndicates. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we're focusing on a different country or culture, exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. So if you love food and you love culture, stay around for some of these stories and wait till the end to see what's cooking this week. If you're good at geography, you may be familiar with some of the beautiful islands dotting the Indian Ocean. In fact, one recent episode, we talked about one of them, Madagascar. And for you guys that listen on a regular basis, Bamat Dihana. I will always know how to say that word after we talked about Madagascar. And trust me, I'm still cooking it. So other names you might recognize, though, are Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and... The other islands around that area, Nauru, though, that's today's episode subject. And it usually doesn't make the list unless you're just an avid news junkie. Surrounded by so many lovely places that are booming tourist industries, it would make sense that Nauru would fall into that, that too. But it's super small, and in fact, it's not even marked on a whole lot of uh, maps. It, it flies under the radar a lot of the time. In fact, that's a huge part of why it's, uh, it's a draw for so many, um, let's say, visitors, or you may want to say criminals. It's safe to say that this little island nation is a far cry from an island paradise that most of us think about retiring to. Surround, surrounded by coral reefs, reefs, let me start over on that one. Surrounded by coral reefs on all sides, with only a small strip of fertile land, around 80% of Nauru was left in uninhabitable because of mining. You see, Nauru is rich in phosphate reserves. When I first started reading about this, I, I thought phosphate, you know, what is that? I, I had a preconceived idea. Phosphate goes into fertilizer. So keep that in mind as we talk more about it. Since the island has so much so little farmable land, most of the inhabitants' food has long been provided for by the ocean that surrounds the island, of course. But now, 40% of that ocean life has been killed off by silt and phosphate runoff that has poured down the rocky coastland during the island's mining days. The shortage of available food is made even worse by Nauru's hot and humid climate and the lack of fresh water resources. That's led to a lack of edible plants, unsustainable wildlife, and an ecosystem that's just 
spiral down and falling apart. It's not always been that way though. Historically, Nauru's first inhabitants were Micro-Asians and Polynesians who moved to the island and split into 12 different clans. They're actually represented on the flag, which has a 12-pointed star. Before the loss of all of the available natural resources, or most of the available resources, native Narunians mainly ate local coconuts and fruits that grew on the island shores, as well as fish that they raised in the lagoon. But being so small and remote, Nauru existed in isolation for most of its history, and it really didn't get on the radar as far as culture and history before the Europeans made contact in 1826. 1826 just isn't that long ago in, in historical uh, terms. And that's when Narunians, that's a word I really kind of like too. I think I'm going to have to remember that one, Narunians. That's when Narunians began regularly trading with Europeans. And peaceful trading continued into the late 1800s when deserters from European ships began to live on the island. They, they began giving the Narunians liquor and firearms in, in exchange for food. The firearms were traded during this time period later ended up in the Narunian Civil War. It's an unprecedented event for the Narunians who ever had access to, they, they never had access to anything other than primitive weapons up until that time. So when you think Civil War, there's an assumption, or there's an assumption for me anyway, that there's a bunch of different factions up, made up of people that have substantially different political views on, you know, different topics. And think about the American Civil War. How many things went into the American? We know slavery was the big one, but there were other things that people argued about during the Civil War, too. Well, the Narunian Civil War actually began over a wedding. Apparently, it was a hell of an event. Oh, can I say that on here? It was a heck of an event because shots ended up being fired over an argument on etiquette during the celebrations. A full-on feud erupted, and it eventually evolved into this all-out war. There was this attempted coup. One side seceded, and then there were two kings for a while. The things were generally pretty wild there for, two, for a few years. Two kings... I think we covered that subject in a, in a recent episode, too. It's interesting. I, I'd like to see how that worked out. So even with the introduction of guns, though, the participants in the war were left in a, this stalemate with one side controlling the north and the other controlled the south. That lasted until about 1888. That's when the German Empire decided to step in and they restored who, the guy that was considered the original king. Let me give you a, a shot at this name. King Uwadu. King Uwadu, and I'll spell that for you, you geeks that like to follow this stuff with me, because I'm one of these geeks too. It's spelled A-W-E-I-D-A. Uwadu. Now, I'm sure that King was pretty relieved as things were pretty out of control at the time, and they were, de they were uh, deteriorating pretty fast. And, you know, the Germans, they came in and propped him up, but they weren't doing it for charity. Namely, King Uwadu allowed the German Empire to annex the island in exchange for helping loyalists seize victory. And 10 years after it began, the Narunian Civil War ended with about 500 deaths. So 500 deaths. Uh, one is too many in any war. 
but when you compare it to, to the wars that we in the U.S. have had, that, that's just, that could be a battle. For Nauru, that was about a third of the population. Also, that's how Nauru became part of the German Marshall Islands. So Nauru remained under Germany's control until about World War I. Britain began looking for ways to undermine Germany in their, their bid for global control. So in order to limit Germany's influence on some of the bigger, more tactical countries in Oceania, the British government offered to free the Narunians. But you know what? The British weren't doing it for free either. Instead, Nauru was used as a bargaining chip with Australia, and ultimately it became uh, under the control of the Australian Allied, Allied Forces in 1914. Five years later, both the United Kingdom and New Zealand also gained share of control of Nauru by the way of the Nauru Island Agreement of 1919, which was signed by leaders of Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. Okay. Even though Nauru is technically under the control of the Allied forces, they're able to stay relatively separated from the fighting that, that had totally engulfed the rest of the world. Uh, that totally engulfed rest of the world. I'm just stumbling all over things tonight, aren't I? In part, it was because of their small size and in part because of their inconvenient location. At least until the 25th of August, 1942, and in the midst of the Second World War, Japanese troops decided that they wanted to occupy the island. Japan built this airfield so that they could easily take over other nearby islands. Uh, you know, they're trying to build the, the Japanese empire. And after the airfield was uh, built, it was bombed by American pilots. So, of course, the Japanese occupation of Nauru, over 1,200 native Narunians were deported to be slave laborers in the Chuuk Islands, which were also um, occupied by Japan. Nauru was finally freed three years later on September 13, 1945, when Japanese commander of the island surrendered to the Royal Australian Navy and the Australian Army. During the discussions of the surrender, both the Japanese and the Australians agreed to free the Narunians who had been sent to work in the Chuuk Islands. But it was an empty victory for many of the families as only 737 of the 1,200 people that had been sent to that, let's call it what it is, this labor camp, only 737 were able to come home from that. So another big loss for a, for a really small community. In the decades that followed World War II, the natural phosphate reserves that were once scattered all over the island were overmined by the British and the Australians and the New Zealanders to the point that the entire island was to pre predicted to become completely uninhabitable by the 1990s. Because the island was so utterly destroyed, it was proposed in 1964 that the powers that be relocate the population of Nauru to Curtis Island, which just it's just off the shore of Queensland, Australia, because they thought that it was cheaper to move the people than to try to save the island. The Australian government proposed purchasing all of the lands on Curtis Island, giving it to the Narunians in exchange for their peaceful cooperation and become Australian citizens. But talks dissolved when the Narunian people asked to be given sovereignty over Curtis Island so that they could establish their own nation again, which was something that the Australian government just completely refused to do. After a long period of 
back and forth conversation that was ultimately aided by the fact that the island was considered to be virtually worthless at th that point, Nauru did manage to regain their independence in 1968. Because Nauru is so far out of the way and doesn't have much in, the, in terms of tourism, the population has historically remained over 58%. That's an oddly specific number. I'm going to have to talk to my researcher, Shia, about that. Of course, she's way smarter than I am, so I just believe her. So this has started to change in the decades, though the uh, Australian government has instituted some immigration policies that involved dumping unwanted newcomers in Nauru for uh, offshore processing. It's, uh, it's not a good look for Australia, but the more you look at it, the weirder it gets. The latest numbers reporting reported at the end of June 2016 list a total of 442 asylum seekers and refugees living in Nauru in their regional processing center. That includes 49 kids. While the number seems relatively small compared to the total number of refugees worldwide, again, I want you to think about the population in Nauru and how big that number is com comparatively. You see, these detainees were held indefinitely, and when the detention center gets full, they just get turned loose on the island. And with nowhere else to go, they just fade into the uh, local population. But it also means a big boom in not only non-native population, it also meant a boom in the homeless population. For reasons that remain unclear, the Australian government gives an official travel document to everyone they turn loose. But interestingly enough, the documents can actually be used to leave. They're just used for show, you know, their ID. According to many accounts, even the Australians don't know how many people they set loose. It's been going on since the 1990s, and the practice finally came under fire from the UN and uh, various global powers on several occasions. And of course, the Nauru government has repeatedly voiced its displeasure at it being in involved in Australia's dirty business of getting rid of their unwanted. This detention center is seriously straight out of the North Korean playbook. In addition to countless reports of abuse from former detainees and employees, foreign journalists are forbidden to enter the island unless they're willing to pay 8000 bucks U.S. dollars. That's for a media visa, and even then, access to the detention center is extremely restricted. The staff themselves are unable to speak on the conditions of the camp, and those who have spoken anonymously to the press face prison time if they get caught. It doesn't end there, though. Because the island's small size, the Nauru government doesn't allow the refugees to remain on the island for more than five years. This creates a situation where some people who go to the Australian, go to Australia seeking asylum are sent to the detention center eventually to be turned out on the streets with no ability to leave, and then after five years are finally deported again, sometimes to random countries, sometimes not even to the place that they came from to begin with. Like I mentioned earlier, Nauru has a long time been the home for large phosphate deposits that are basically the results of thousands of years of bird droppings. These rich deposits lie right below the island surface, allowing it to be very easy to be strip mined. 
In case you're not familiar with what strip mining is, that's when a thin strip of soil or rock above the resource deposit that you want is removed, allowing the resource to be easily removed. And then the hole that's left is filled with rock and soil that's taken off the top. This destroys the landscape of the mined area since the trees and the wildlife need to be removed from that area for it to be mined, which can potentially be pretty disastrous, disastrous for most areas, but especially in places like Nauru, where the environment was already inhospitable to begin with. The area is further destroyed when rain hits the loose soil and causes runoff, dumping loads of minerals and silt into nearby rivers and streams. But since Nauru doesn't have any rivers or streams, the runoff just goes straight into the ocean, decimating the local uh, ocean wildlife. In Nauru's case, around 40% of the local sea life has died due to the runoff from phosphate mining, effectively poisoning their only food source. The Germans were the first to discover and exploit the island's resources when they brought Nauru under their control. But their power over the mining industry in Nauru came to an end when the League of Nations made New Zealand, Australia, and British trustees over Nauru. And the British Phosphate Commission took over the rights to the phosphates. Originally, the Australian and British miners were sent to Nauru, but soon the various companies that mined there decided that it was too expensive to bring out their own workers, so they hired native Nauruanian and Chinese miners to do the job for a lot less wages. Issues quickly rose when the companies decided to cut the wages of the Chinese and the Nauruanian miners even further, which led to strikes over the low pay and terrible working conditions in 1948. When these strikes began, the administrator for Nauru, an Australian man named Eddie Ward, imposed a state of emergency and mobilized the native police and the militia, uh, which was made up of locals and Australian officials. The militia was provided with submachine guns to use on the gathered crowds of workers, causing the deaths of two and wounding 16. Around 50 of the remaining workers were arrested, and another two people died when a trooper bayoneted them to death while they were in police custody. That trooper was eventually arrested and charged with the murder, but was later acquitted because apparently he had tripped and fell and accidentally bayoneted these two handcuffed workers to death. Hmm. Yeah, okay. The various problems that phosphate mining brought to the island remained through the various holds that different countries had on Nauru. Despite the protests of the Nauruanian government, it wasn't until the country regained its independence and the newly formed government purchased the full rights to the phosphate business from Australia that reforms really began to take place. Now enjoying their self-autonomy and seeing the wealth of their resources and labor generated remained on the island instead of going to all these other countries. And at that time, the island's economy soared. The money made from the mining business raised the average income on the island by so much that it became the highest level in the world. The, think about that. They had the highest average income in the world. Not the only thing they're known for, though. We're going to get back to some other things that, that they lead into in and that they lead in in a second. So the money made from the mining business raised the average income. And it was aided by the fact that this was only being split between a 
few people because the population was so small. This came at a cost because as the mining continued despite the rampant ecological destruction, the various problems that phosphate mining brought to the island remained through the various holds that different countries had on Nauru, despite the protest of the Nauruanian government. It wasn't until the country regained independence and the newly formed government purchased the full rights of the phosphate business from Australia, the reforms really began to take place. Now, enjoying their self-autonomy and seeing the wealth of their resources and labor generated remained on the island instead of going to various countries made the island's economy soar. Money made from the mining business raised the average income in the nation so much that at the time it was the highest level in the world. And it was aided by the fact that it was being split between fewer people because their population was so small. This came at a cost though, as mining continued despite the already rampant ecological destruction it had caused, all that remained in areas that were mined were these tall columns of corals with uneven depressions around them. It left over 80% of the island unusable for habitation or crops, or really, it just left it unusable for anything. The island's eats were dying and the islanders we're dying to eat. Aha! The years of economic boom from mining died out as the phosphate reserves on the island were depleted. It didn't help that there had been a series of bad investments made by the government, including uh, overseas hotels and Air Nauru Airline, none of which ever made a profit. By 2004, the small island nation was on the verge of bankruptcy and about to default on a loan from an American financer. As much history as we talk about, to even say 2004, man, that, that seems like yesterday. So various groups were eager to take advantage of Nauru's financial struggle, and their precarious position is what led the country to become even more embroiled in criminal activity. One of the most popular common methods, money laundering. By the early 2000s, Nauru was at the peak of its financial struggle and it was also at the peak of notoriety in the Western international finance circles. Amid the various money laundering centers that had bloomed into a $5 trillion shadow economy, Nauru was at the top of the list. In fact, it became public enemy number one for the group of seven. Do you know who they are? I bet Pete does. It's an organization of seven leading economic powers that routinely identifies and attempts to take down the dozen or so nations that provide a haven for illegal finance operations. Even among these countries, Nauru stood out. According to Viktor Melanov, in 1998, Russian criminals laundered over $70 billion through a bank in Nauru. Put it in perspective, the 1997 Bank of New York money laundering scandal, the largest scandal in the Western world, only laundered $7 billion. Half of, what, half of that went through Nauru. So how did they pull off a score 10 times bigger than that? Well, by the 1990s, because of the financial problems they were facing, Nauru had already become a tax haven and offered passports to foreign nationals for a fee. They also allowed nationals to create a licensed bank in the country with no, 
hear that now, zero requirements except for a $25,000 fee. Think about that. You could own your own bank for 25 grand. Hmm. So this type of banking, better known as offshore banking, allows a country to register new banks with loose rules and permits them to operate anywhere in the world except in the company in the country that they're registered. Nauru's new banking system was found to be part of the multiple cases of money laundering entirely contained inside the government institution called the Nauru Agency Corporation. It was, in fact, no more than a group of computers that were sitting inside a shack humming away day and night as billions of dollars worth of wire transfer just buzzed through them. The agency was so well hidden that when a reporter from the New York Times traveled to the country to report on the rumors, they were unable to find anyone who even knew of whispers of where it might be located. No one, that is, except a postal clerk who led them to a rundown building hugging a side street. That reporter's serendipitous run-in with the suspiciously well-informed postal worker didn't even put a hitch in what was going on in Nauru's seedy financial underbelly. Who knew money laundering could be that easy? In reality, the way that it's being done on Nauru is just a new method of handling an age-old criminal problem of taking money that's been earned illegally and move it through one or more transactions so it becomes legitimized, or at least that's what it appears to be. For example, let's say that you had $100,000 in illegal money that you needed to, you need to move around and clean. In the past, you could go into a casino, buy $100,000 in chips, gamble a little bit, and cash in your chips for a cashier's check. Since the cashier's check is now casino winnings, you wouldn't raise very much suspicion. But Nauru specializes in a more modern version of that, and it's called shell banking. Those banks I mentioned earlier only existed on paper. They didn't have tellers. They didn't have ATMs. They didn't have a trail. The money can't be traced because, unlike legitimate banks, these aren't required to report suspicious patterns or identities of their customers. So even if the money does move into actual physical banks, all that's seen is an unidentified flow of money. And once that money is passed through the legitimate banks, it doesn't matter whether it's traceable or not. It's a complicated situation where everyone knows what's happening, but the Nauru government isn't going to step in and ruin a major part of their economy, and other governments can't put it together enough proof to do anything about it. Of course, a place that's home to so much shady business and several wars and occupations will eventually see more than its fair share of death, and Nauru is no exception. And considering Nauru's over 3,000-year-long history, there should be a veritable treasure trove of information on traditional Narunian funeral practices. But guess what? There just isn't. Apparently, the Narunians weren't big on record-keeping, and none of their overseers were interested in really doing any record-keeping either. Ordinarily, this would be the part in the episode when we talk about the clothes, the food, the philosophy... You know, everything that goes into the funeral traditions. But for Nauru, all of that information's already been lost to the sands of time. The first mention of burials on Nauru is from the Cemeteries Act of 1922, which was 
codified nearly a hundred years after native Narunians came in contact with the Europeans. Even this didn't give much information on burial traditions. Instead, it talks about the legal processes of the funeral. For example, the fact that you were only allowed to be buried with members of your own race. Hmm. That meant that Europeans, Chinese, South Sea Islanders, New Guinea natives, and natives of Nauru each had their separate cemeteries, and you weren't allowed to be buried anywhere else. Hmm. However, because the lack of available land, cemeteries on the island were filled by 2016, which caused the creation of the Funeral, Burial, and Cremation Act of 2017. During the gap between the cemeteries reaching max capacity and the creation of the new act, people had taken to burying their loved ones near their homes, which brought some various risk of human health as well as possible underground water contamination. Did I say underground water? Uh, let's say groundwater. How about possible groundwater contamination? This also posed problems for further development of the areas, as wherever a body is found, then the construction has to stop and everything has to be investigated before anyone can move on. This was, this was especially true in more densely packed areas where the family of the deceased wouldn't bury their dead on their own property, but would instead bury them on their neighbor's property or <laughs> i know man i'm laughing too or you know on public land or even even on government land <laughs> uh, so before the funeral burial and cremation act 2017 there was actually no government regulation on cremations performed on the island at all which meant there also wasn't a health standard that had to be followed or proper licensing needed if you're performing uh, cremation. You might go home with ashes after a loved one that was cremated, but there was absolutely no guarantee that they belonged to anyone you, <laughs> you knew, really. For that fact, how would you even know if they were human? The new act also dictated that only one person was able to be buried in a grave at a time. This had become a bit of an issue after the cemeteries filled up because the new law dictated that there was that the only exception for the one corpse per grave rule is when a child under the ten, under 10 is buried. In those cases, another casket could go on top as long as it was at least one meter underground. And I think that's about three feet. Most funerals that occur follow the traditions of whatever faith the deceased belonged to. This means most Arunians have either a Protestant or a Roman Catholic funeral, as most the most popular religions on the island, accounting for over 60% of the population, are those two. In the case of Protestant Christian funerals, they're often held in a place of worship, such as a church or a chapel, and the day after the funeral, the family will usually come to visit with their dead at a wake. Unlike other countries, though, in Nauru, most viewings happen in a home, in the home of the deceased. If the body isn't able to be viewed, such as the event of a missing body, or it's cremated, or it's severely disfigured, then a picture or their urn is used in the place of the corpse. The funeral itself is usually presided over by a local minister, and during it, the friends and family of the deceased sing hymns and speakers are chosen by the close family 
to give the eulogies. They might also read a part of the deceased favorite scripture or a page from their favorite book. Sometimes they might tell a story or have share a fun memory that they had with the deceased. After the funeral itself, family and close friends of the dead usually gather for food that the family provided and they reminisce about the history of the deceased and you know the good times. Protestant funerals are generally held not only to mourn the person's death, but to also celebrate their life. I sure hope that's the way it is with me. I want everyone to come together for me and have a real good old time. The other most common funeral following the Roman Catholic tradition is similar, but it has more structure. For Catholics, with as many cultures and religions, the funeral services serve an important function for those who live on since they believe that the soul continues to exist after the person dies. While most branches of Christianity believe in heaven and hell, Catholics believe in a third destination where the soul might go after death. It's called purgatory. While heaven is where souls go to be saved, or souls that are saved go, Hells, where souls that aren't saved and have committed unforgivable sins go. Purgatory is for the souls of those who have committed sins that are forgivable, so they're given a chance to eventually end up in heaven. I'm sure I'm going to have a lot of uh, blowback from Catholics because I didn't get that exactly right, but trust me, it's close to that. Because of the belief in purgatory, Catholic funerals are used as a time to appeal to God, to be merciful for the dead loved one's soul, and to encourage forgiveness. With forgiveness in mind, most Catholic funerals are full of prayers for the dead and comforting, speeches about the peaceful, luxurious afterlife they're going to be enjoying. This is pretty standard practice as far as funerals go, but there are a lot more rites performed in the Catholic funerals. One of these is the funeral mass, which symbolizes the resurrection of Christ. Funeral masses follow a certain order. First, there's a greeting done by the priest, then the procession of the priest, the coffin, and the attendees up the aisle. During the procession, holy water is sprinkled in a path for those walking to consecrate the ground. Then come the open hymn and prayers, readings from the Bible, and the Holy Communion. After this, there are more prayers before the coffin is taken back down the aisle and transported to the gravesite where more prayers are said before the funeral ends. Unlike the Protestant funeral, though, there are no eulogies given. Instead, if someone wants to say some words about the dead, they usually say them at the wake, which is held after the funeral. For a long time, Catholic Church didn't allow cremations, but nowadays a person can be cremated and can even donate their body to science to be used in autopsies, which is often considered a benevolent act of charity in line with God's will. Neither the Protestants nor the Catholics have any particular feasting traditions when it comes to funerals. Of course, we'll cover more of that as we cover other places and times. We're speaking in general terms here, because every family has their traditions, and Nauru certainly has plenty of delicious delicacies be chosen for these days. Speaking of which, it's time to see what's cooking this week. You know, Nauru is really an interesting place, and while I can't say it's on my short, plate, short list of places I want to go visit, whoa boy, do they have a lot going on there. 
My research turned up a ton of fascinating facts, but as always, I want to know what they were eating. And man, they are eating. All jokes aside, obesity has become a pretty big e epidemic in Nauru's residents. And I really do hope that they can address it as a community as time goes on. At this point, they are the most obese population by number. Once I got into the meat of things, it was pretty easy to consider the recipes, though. There were two contenders in the end, and both I've enjoyed, and both carry a lot of weight with me. First, the dish that I didn't pick. Spam fried rice. Now wait, wait, hear me out. It's not just something for you to turn up your nose and think it's for poor college kids. While I was in the process of choosing which recipe to go with, I actually learned a lot about this famous mystery meat and adding some of the good fried rice and all of the vegetable infusions that you can add to it that just take it to a different level. I may just have to revisit that in a future episode or maybe a bonus recipe. On to the recipe that I did end up choosing for this week. The national dish of Nauru is coconut encrusted fish. I've been thinking for a while now that I'd like to take my normal dredge and baked fish sticks to, uh, to a higher level. And in preparation for this recipe, my brother and I went fishing and came home with a bunch of mangrove and lane snapper fillets. It was perfect timing because, you know, I'm just dying to eat. As always, I took some liberties to steer this recipe in a direction that was easy to follow for the average cook and put my own spin on it. To get started, you need three pounds of fish fillets cut to whatever size suits your portion preferences. Two cups each of panko breadcrumbs and shredded coconut that you can go ahead and mix up and set to the side. A cup of cold whole milk with two tablespoons of vanilla mixed in it. Mix that up and set it aside. And finally, three quarters cup of all-purpose flour, two tablespoons of white sugar, and half a teaspoon of salt all mixed together and set aside. Start by slowly pouring your flour mixture into your milk mixture and whisk it until it's nice and smooth with no lumps. Be sure you don't over stir it though. Let the batter set in the bowl for about five minutes or so and then add your fish into that bowl. Make sure that the fillets get completely submerged so that you get an even coating. I'd say let that sit for another five minutes. While you're waiting, heat up some oil in your pan about one inch deep over medium high heat. You can test it by taking a piece of coconut and throwing it in the oil. And when you see bubbles form around the edge of the coconut, then you know it's hot enough. Systematically place your fish in the breading, one fillet at a time. Pat the breading onto the fish to make sure it's coated really well, and then carefully place it in the hot oil. Fry it on each side until the breading is golden brown. Drain your cooked fish on a plate as you move through it. And there's three points to note in this process. First, don't overcrowd your pan. Second, don't be afraid to add more oil if you need to. And third, if the coconut starts to burn or the oil just gets too hot, just go ahead and turn that heat down a little bit. Now once all your fillets are fried, it's time to eat. There are so many dipping sauces that pair well with this fish, I tell you, just pick your favorite and go dig in. Personally, I like sweet and sour with mine. 
So guys, I'm your host Scott Parrish. I'd like to thank you from me and my team for listening to Dying to Eat. This show is being made possible by viewers like you. I said viewers last time. This show is made possible by listeners like you. And I really appreciate your support. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, then drop us a like and follow the show. Till next time, stay lively.